Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor. I have the pleasure of being joined by Paul Lally, executive producer of Ciao Italia and novelist. And we're going to cover a few different topics, Paul. First, tell me a little bit about yourself and your basic personal background. Where are you from? Things like that. I'm one of those Midwest boys, born in Ohio, and then pretty soon after that became sort of all over the place, Arizona, uh, Washington, D.C., moving around for a variety of reasons, uh, one of five kids in a family, and a fairly raucous family. Father died early in my life, so we were sort of on our own with a a single mom making ends meet being a nurse, so and we had to entertain ourselves a lot, obviously, because she's out working, and I think that's maybe where I got my genes of entertainment, because God knows my brother was, and my both brothers, actually, so it's a big deal. My father was a dentist, but he played in a dance band. I think, given his brothers, he'd have gone into show business, but his father owned a vaudeville house in, in Niles, Ohio, if you can imagine, early on. And when he got married, his wife said, no more of this, man, we got to settle down and have a real life, so... She said, you'll be something responsible. So he became a cop. He became a policeman. So, and so therefore, you know how genes uh, jump generations. All of those genes piled into me, I think. So. Tell me a little bit about your recollections being young and your experience with television, your experience with media. What were some of your early influences, things that really you were interested in? Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I, I grew into television as it grew into this culture. You know, not that I'm like 110 talking here, but I was with it early on. You know, I mean, it certainly was established, but I, I do remember the power of it. There was a morning show called The Big Picture. It was on Sunday mornings. It was like the your army today, you know, U.S. Army today. So, and I remember being a kid going down, and I think it's probably because I didn't have a dad. I would watch this show on Sunday morning. Everybody's sleeping. And I would sit in front of this little TV, and I would watch this sergeant so-and-so, you know, say, this is the Army today, we're doing this thing and other thing. And I, I remember that very vividly, and connecting with a world outside through glass, a world outside of my own. It was very powerful for me. I love asking guests during interviews about their big break. You know, as you were entering the business, was there something or someone who really moved things forward for you? Oh, my God, yes. Broadcasting Magazine is the vehicle. I had been working in television. I learned in the University of Maryland, studied it there, worked in public television for about 10 years. And I was out of work at the time. My company folded. I said, what am I going to do? I'm freelancing. I saw this ad in Broadcasting Magazine. It said, wanted television director for children's show, period, and a box number. I responded, boom, and it turned out to be Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And not only did they want a director, they were also expanding. And so I'm also a writer and a screenwriter and a novelist, and they were expanding their business. So it turned out because I was also a writer, uh, 
they hired me as the director for the, for the television show and also to write screenplays for them. Talk about a break. Hey, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I mean, that was my pinnacle. The world fell away from me. It was my oyster. Because I would call people, say, I'm the director for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, we need to go survey something. Say. So it was just doors would open for me. And it was just a huge uh, break for me in my career. It was a fabulous chance to have a 10-year relationship, a deep, deep friendship with Fred Rogers. And he got me going. That was my big break. Well, certainly almost anybody familiar with children's programming, never mind any programming, is familiar with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Tell us a little bit more about your specific experience working with both Fred Rogers, of course, but producing and development directing a children's television show. Tell us your thoughts on that. When I came in, I remember watching, obviously before I started, I watched who was directing before me, as Hugh Martin was the director. And at this point in Fred's life, people used to say he was entering the Cary Grant phase of his life, meaning he looked fabulous and everybody knew him as a Cary Grant. But I studied Hugh Martin's directorial technique on earlier shows. I went, God, this guy is so slick and doing this and that. I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I was obviously intimidated because prior to being with Fred, I was directing film on location, film, single camera directing. And this required multiple camera directing, you know, all the ones in live switching. And so I can remember <laughs> I drew a picture of a switcher, the thing where you push the buttons to make the cameras change. I drew a diagram of what it looked like, and I would sit at home and I'd practice talking, saying, ready camera two, all right, ready two, and, and take two, three, hold your shot. So I would practice my rhythms to get into it, number one, just to handle multiple camera switching. And then, two, the fact that it's a television show for children was where he had lots of different cameras, three cameras, four cameras sometimes. So I said to Fred, I said, you know, I'm just going to do two cameras on this show. It's either going to be you or something else. That's it, either or. The primary audience are preschoolers. So we're going to teach them film grammar. You and I, you know, you look at a wide shot and you can go to a close-up and you can make that logical shift in your head. But a kid goes, now what? You know, big group. Now, who's this big head in front of me? So I would always walk my shots in. I walked them out. And also, this is very esoteric stuff. But you get into an either-or situation. You know, it's going to be either a two-shot of Betty Aberlin and Daniel Stripe the Tiger or a close-up of Betty. So back and forth, back and forth. And I took completely secret pride in that as a director, that it was subtle, but it worked. I want to drill into that just a little bit more. It's not so esoteric, and I think people would love to know these details. Well, I'm cautious not to make it too specific. Well, tell uh, me about this. I mean, use the language walking, right? So yeah, I'm assuming yeah. you're talking about a moving camera shot as opposed to a well, hard cut. Well, actually, the framing. So if it's three people talking, you have a wide shot of three people, then an over-the-shoulder shot of two people, and then a single of a, one person. So you walk your way in and walk your way out. You don't go from a wide shot to a close-up. You know, you can handle it if you're an adult, but it's still called a slam cut. I have a responsibility, and anybody in the media does, that, you know, you're presenting a story, and as a director, you're simply directing their attention. You're directing them where to look. That's what a director does. kind of simplistic, but it has to be deep levels of respect for an audience to not lose them, you know, in the story. I had four-year-olds, okay, but I had to respect them, and I do, as, you know, smart little kids, but they were little kids. But I didn't want to give them what I used to call whiplash shots. You know, <laughs> They didn't know where they were. So, uh, but, but I took it very seriously, and 
and took pride in it. And I can look back and look at those shows and say, you know, it's nice that they still hold up. Absolutely. And probably millions, I don't think it's too much to say, millions of people thank you for it. I tell people whenever I do meet them and say, I say, you can ask me any question you want about Neighbor to Make Believe. I know about Dan's Trumpet Tiger. I know about XCL and King Friday the 13th. Blah, blah, blah. That's kind of fun just to see them. Basically, the neighborhood is, has changed. You know, now they're doing an animated series, which I think is great, uh, Daniel's Neighborhood or something. But at least his legacy has kind of come back a little bit, and I'm very grateful for that. Well, shifting gears from a multicam children's show to Chow Italia, to a very successful cooking gourmet culinary show that includes some travel, which I want to get to. Tell me a little bit about your history with Marianne Esposito and your work with Chow Italia. Basically, you can say I burned out with Fred Rogers, but I directed 120 episodes for Fred. At one time, the editor turned to me and said, what's this week's theme? And I looked at him and said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, it's time for you to head out of town. So I was able, I shifted uh, jobs. My brother lived in New Hampshire. Incidentally, Fred was produced in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I... Um, I got a job at New Hampshire Public Television in New Hampshire, and I was thinking I was going to teach television production and kind of say, my career's done. This is like, mind you, this is 20 years ago. That was good. I'm going to teach now and kind of cruise along. Well, within a year, uh, the Italian cooking series was being produced at a local level, and they turned to me and said, hey, you want to do this? I said, sure, I can do this because it's going to go to PBS. So I basically took everything I learned from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and applied it to another person who looked into the camera. Instead of Fred would say, everybody likes you just the way you are, and you know, you know. and Marianne would say, now you're going to add yeast, and this, the concept of direct camera address is very similar. So I was able to walk right into that series and take a crew of college kids, God bless them, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to redesign the show so they can do it, feel good about themselves, and have a national credit, for God's sake, on their resume right out of college. So I did. Because I remember when I was in college, I was pretty much, um, I was dead serious. I was gunning for bear. And I knew they were, too. So I took over with Marianne, and we hit it off right from the beginning. And we now, even today, after 23 years out of 25 years, Marianne's my television wife, and I'm her television husband. We joke about it because we are. We're joined at the hip. And um, here's the other interesting side rule that I knew with Fred Rogers. If you took away the TV cameras, he'd still do what he would do on the street to kids. And if you take away the cameras from Marianne, she would still do what she does. And I used to tell her sometimes, Marianne, look, you cook, but if you hook rugs, I can make this work for you. Okay, It's your passion. People like to see other people this is getting kind of lofty, but I believe this. The people watching at home like to see people in their bliss, and Marianne is in her bliss, and she loves cooking. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Let's drill in a little further with Chow Italia. This is interesting. In the last 10 to 15 years, there's been an explosion of cooking shows, cooking reality shows, cooking competition shows, 
every shape and form of people in the kitchen, male, female, you know, mm-hmm. all every flavor. I'd like your perspective on the quality of Chow Italia. And in my perception, it hasn't been trendy. You know, it's been following traditional, if not a variety of Italian recipes and Italian cooking. And it's been a cornerstone in a lot of ways to the broadcast cooking pantheon. <laughs> so I'd like, oh, yeah. I'd like your comments on seeing this, being a frontline witness to the explosion of this industry, this, this media market. Well, and you're quite right. When I started, it was 1989 or 90, let's say 1990. So, and there were at that time on public television, maybe four cooking series, you know, Martin Yan, Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, and Marianne. I mean, very simple, maybe five, six, maybe more. Nowadays, I think it's 90 to 100, you know, depending where you're looking at. So obviously a huge explosion. And uh, there's like two different distinctions with food uh, broadcasting. One is if you want to learn how to do it versus if you want to be entertained. There's, and there's two very separate, valid ways to enjoy that kind of programming. And here's why, for me at least, how I look at it. The golden thread that runs through both those kind of concepts, you know, how do I make an omelet or how does someone shout at that person because they're making the omelet and it's awful? You know, there's just two different kind of approaches, okay? The golden thread throughout that is food. That's the key thing. And as far as I'm concerned, maybe there's two universals in life. One's a smile that cuts across all human barriers. Two, it's food. It's a very unifying concept. And I have been in Russia. I have been in Italy. When people talk about food, all the barriers go away. We lose sense of geography. We're united in a common bond. So when people, I think why... Like Food Network successful, two different channels, blah, 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 is that food is unifying. And you can look at all the, you know, Gordon Ramsay and the chaos and the explosions and the drama and all that kind of crap. Or Marianne saying, make sure you put salt in the pasta water, do this, you know. Regardless of how you want to spend, you know, half hour of your life watching something food related, at bottom, at root, is that particular unifying element that's holding you there, that it's a universal. And that's, that's sort of my esoteric take, but I've been studying it a long time. And that's a way to explain the phenomenon. I'm sure that people do as well. I wanted to drill in a little bit more on Chow Italia for a second. You mentioned the, you know, how-to version. That's one kind. And then the mm-hmm. people yelling at you, you know, yeah. Yell, yelling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of that voyeur, you know, the kind of yeah, reality show yeah. style. I'd love to hear your thoughts about Anthony Bourdain's show because from a production standpoint, we love watching his show because of the camera work and and the writing and that production quality. But he certainly is not a how-to, but it's almost a kind of a travel show, political show, and, and certainly the cultural elements are in there. And I think that speaks a little bit to what you're talking about. I'd love to hear your two cents on that. Well, I think earlier I said – now I used to tell Marianne, I said, if you love to hook rugs, I'll make it work for you on television. Because it's passion. That's all that people want to see. And with Anthony Bourdain is a great example. His uh, Kitchen Confidential I read years ago. Just electrifying book. And in essence, he has become, in my opinion, someone who is absolutely in his bliss 
kind of careening, eating, you know, octopus standing on his head, drinking vodka, kind of dissolute bliss, but he's in his bliss. And he is who he is. And I think people love to watch other people being fully who they are. And in, in Bourdain's case, he's, it's food-related, he's a cook, he's experiential. I think at, at root, all you're looking at is personality-driven television. And you go down deeper, it's a person being who they are, saying, here I am, take it or leave it, and Bourdain, God knows. And, and he apparently has good enough producers and certainly a, a great production staff around him that allows him just to be who he is, you know, crazy or not, careening, you know, whatever. And they edit it beautifully. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliantly done program. But I think in, at that root for me, looking at it as a producer saying, what's driving this thing? What's the gasoline in it? Well, it's, it's making this engine work. It's a personality. If Anthony Bourdain hooked rugs, you'd be just as damn well interested, I think. That's my point. Before we move on to your writing, I wanted to ask you about the award that you won last November, an Emmy from the National Academy. It's the Silver Circle Award. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, I've been with the Academy forever, and I have a bunch of, you know, regional Emmys from them, which is, you know, different kind of programs and stuff. But last year, I mean, they called me up and said, guess what? You know, so it's not something I, I went after, but... Somebody recommended me, and they looked at it and reviewed my career and said, well, this person has had a distinguished career, but also has helped other people kind of get into the business and, and mentoring other people, which I've done. And they have something, what they call Silver Circle Award, which is you enter the circle of particular you know, people in broadcasting. I've done this, and they, they give you an award. And I was quite taken by it. I, I mean, I've never gotten an award like that. So I said, oh, who, me? So, but there was... I was very honored. My daughters flew in from where they lived in Minneapolis and in, in Seattle. That was great, great ceremony. And I was with my kids, and it was just great. And I'm glad they have it. They also have a Golden Circle Award, which I think you have to be like 120 or something. <laughs> you get that one, but I don't want to be that old to get that one. So, But the Silver Circle, yeah, I'll take that. Well, looking back to your comments on Mr. Rogers, you spoke about the college students. Uh, and, of course, the Silver Circle Award certainly was related to your mentoring, as you said. Can you tell us about that? What are your thoughts on mentoring and grooming the younger generation? When, if someone has the level of passion to kind of come at me and say, look, I want to do this X, Y, and Z, you know, I'm saying, you know, you, you're already home free. Woody Allen said 95% of success is showing up. And that sense of wanting to do it, and you can be cliche and say, well, you know, the fire in the belly and that kind of thing. But I remember that. I remember looking at a tally light come on in a camera and just getting so excited. <laughs> you know, it just rang my bell. And I have believed in dealing with people coming into the business and wanting to do it, that I take them very seriously. And uh, I think that's all we really need to do is have somebody believe in us, especially when we're not sure of it ourselves. And I'll give you a perfect example of that, because I'm very young, early in my career. I was out of college. I was working part-time as a cameraman. And I remember one night at a public TV station, I still remember his name, King Harrison. He was head of engineering. And I was pissing and moaning about something, but basically being insecure. Because I was just trying to get started in the business, get a toehold somewhere. He looked at me and said, you'll do fine. That's all I said. But he said it. He looked at me and said, you'll do fine. That's all I needed was somebody to say, hey, you're going to be fine. So when I talk with young people, if I think they've got the right chops, I have to make sure of that. Then I'll go, 
hey, you'll do fine. Because <laughs> I know that's all they want is somebody to reflect back to them the dream they're having and saying, well, yeah, well, that'll work. And what happens is, guess what? It works. You know, and if it doesn't, it becomes something else. But at least they're going forward with their lives and their careers. And, so, and that's how I handle anybody who I mentor. Well, we've heard about your television production background, award-winning, influential work. And now some people would think of it as a left turn. I would guess that you don't, although I'd like to hear your thoughts on, okay, you turn to writing. Is this a brand new thing to you? Have you been writing for a number of years? Tell us how you started going down this road. Well, for me in television, I mean, I started in storytelling. You know, you, you tell stories. I was never a journalist. I never was covering events that were already happening. I was always interested in creating things and creating stories, creating this, creating that. And storytelling came to me very early. And in my case, being in my mid-20s, I, I started writing. I started writing novels. I just wrote stories. I just wrote these big, huge, honking, you know, not little short stories, no poems, man. It's like these monster stories. And I called them novels, but they were you know, pretty ungainly. And I started writing at a very early age. So I, my career has been sort of a parallel track where my day job, so to speak, has been television and still is. And my early-in-the-day job is writing fiction. And for the past 10 years, I get up at 3.30 in the morning, believe it or not, AAA, and I write until 5.30. I write fiction. 5.30, I'm done. I exercise and have breakfast, change hats, and then I do, I produce Child Dahlia the rest of the day. But I realize I can't write late at night. Some people do. I can't. And I realize that, you know, that's my bliss. You know, my day job really is Chow Italian. I'm good at it. But boy, my muse is writing big, huge stories. And as long as I can do that, I'm a happy guy. And Marianne supports me completely, which is fabulous. So she knows, you know, I'm her husband, but I, <laughs> my morning job is <laughs> as long as I do it in the morning, which I do. And this is my 10th, 11th novel, actually. But my third one that's actually selling, or this particular one will sell, because I had to learn the craft. You know, it took me a long time. Well, that's an excellent point. So you're on to, you said your 10th novel is Ride the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And you're self-publishing this with the Kindle platform, correct? Yeah, I tend to call it online publishing because I believe that that's the best way to characterize this particular branch of publishing. At the moment, it's maybe $5 billion with a B, $5 billion of a, at the moment, a $50 billion print world, but it's changing, you know? And I have a literary agent. I've had Marion Young, my literary agent, for 20 years. But when it came to Ride the Titanic, I said, look, I want to try this with Kindle Scout, which is Amazon's way of doing a little bit of a crowdsourcing, saying, you would like this novel? Let us know and vote for it or nominate it, so to speak. So I, just, I took Ride the Titanic, my latest novel to do that. And it's up there now, being, uh, you know, pulling in nominations. So it's a 30-day slug where you're allowed to be there, and and if it works, then they'll they'll cut a publishing deal with you, give you an advance. They'll own e-book rights only. I'll retain print rights for five years. We'll see how it works out. But I'm just riding the crest of how I feel of publishing the direction it's going and trying to bring my work to that venue. Thanks, Paul. 
Please join us for part two of my conversation with producer, director, and novelist Paul Lally. Hope you can join us. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, audio engineer J.P. Conk, senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.